0: This is Union Days, stories from a union scrapbook. When I was growing up, kids wanted to be astronauts, footballers, scientists, shop owners. But I knew I wanted to be part of the union world, part of the struggle for better jobs, safer conditions, greater equality. So I've worked in and for unions all my working life. It's been a huge privilege and a great experience. Vets, cops, lawyers, medics, footballers' wives, they all get to tell their tales. Now it's the turn of a union rep to open the scrapbook of stories. The people, places, Scraps and scrapes, heroes and villains, tall tales and low blows. It's the stuff of life itself, and I can't wait to share these stories with you. Who knows? You might see yourself in some of them. In fact, you probably will, though we have changed some names and other details. Let's get started. It's 1990. For about a year or so, I've been working for the National Communications Union. The NCU's members were telecom engineers and administrative grades. They also had some members in the post office and in the then Gyro Bank. I had just taken over the health and safety pitch from Roger Darlington. This was nervy enough in itself. He was held in deep respect by the union's activists and had just come within a whisker of capturing the number two slot in the organisation. He oozed knowledge, confidence Urbanity. Quickly, I had to learn a whole new vocabulary. So, if I said to you, peritendinitis or tenosynovitis, you'd probably be forgiven for thinking that I was recalling the names of long extinct dinosaurs. And carpal tunnel syndrome? It's not, as some might imagine, the latest born thriller. All three are, in fact, repetitive strain injuries, conditions that, as the generic term suggests, come about from doing something again and again, and again, and again, 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 again. They are close cousins to the long-known about vibration white finger, a loss of feeling, mobility and circulation, to the fingers of those in heavy or extractive industries who used power tools all day, every day. But in the late 20th century, RSIs went under the alternative acronym of ROLDS, Work-Related Upper Limb Disorders. It seems utterly bizarre, unbelievable now, in a time of laptops, high-tech graphics, ergonomic chairs as standard, and increasingly flexible working environments, that working at a keyboard linked to a display screen could and did literally cripple workers. And employers denied all liability for that. In the late 1980s and into the 90s, it was commonplace for an element of pay to be linked to proficiency. Nothing new in that then or now, except this proficiency was how many keystrokes you made in a given period of time. More keystrokes, more dosh, too few, and that begged questions about your suitability for the role. Remember, again and again, and again, and again, 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 It's not the task that is necessarily dangerous, but how it's to be done. This how is not just how often but also how the flow of work is regulated, the working environment, the kit you have to use. Data entry and processing workers were in a triple lock here. Pay was incentivized by keystrokes, rest breaks were dictated by factory age thinking, and office furniture had not been designed with this sort of work regime in mind. Now imagine, you're sat in a chair. You can't adjust the height. It may or may not have armrests, and if it has, you can't adjust those either on the desk is the keyboard and the screen the display isn't that clear and you can only make it marginally brighter or darker and there's nothing you can do at all about the glare and reflection there may or may not be room for a footrest the footwell may be cluttered with boxes or some other office supply overflow thing right from the off you can feel the stress across your shoulders down your arms through your wrists and fingers You'd love to just get up and and stretch your legs, your back, but that's not on. When it comes, the pain is real. At first, you think it isn't, that it's you, that it's just one of those passing things. But soon, the pain comes quicker and takes longer to fade. And ultimately, in some cases, it doesn't fade at all. Headaches from the glare, weakness of grip, loss of strength, a shooting sensation in your lower arms. And possibly too late you find out it's not just you, and it's not just a weakness in you, but fundamentally unsafe working conditions. Oh, the employer? No, the employer won't wear it. Possibly in the knowledge that admission of liability will open legal floodgates. We gradually go from stage to stage, exhausting dialogue with the firm, lodging cases in court, trying to avoid prolonging this for any longer than is necessary. In parallel, cases on behalf of workers in banking and journalism are also running. So on a December morning outside the City of London County Court, we're waiting for the judgment. There's a media scrum outside and I'm with our members trying to decipher the legalese. It's in our favour, but the damages that are awarded are modest. A few thousand to each. Scant compensation for the pain and loss of income. You can't survive on pyrrhic victories. As we come out of the court building though, the significance of what has happened was already there to see, in fact right in your face, a blizzard of flashlights, microphones thrusting out of a jumble of journalists like hedgehog spikes, shouted questions that couldn't be heard, let alone answered because it was just lost in a storm of noise and light. This boisterous but not unfriendly scrum sort of rolled along the road to where a press conference had been organised that we had a venue for this felt like a miracle in itself i'm not sure what i thought we would do if we won go back to the office and draft a press release maybe fortunately my colleagues in comms had thought ahead but there had been no discussion no plan no one knew what they were doing what followed was one of those kind of possession is nine tenths of the law sort of things or as one of my senior colleagues was fond of saying just carry on till you're told to stop i took the chair in the middle of the top table pulled others onto the platform, and began what was a barely controllable media briefing. How are you going to spend the money? was one of the stupider questions asked of our members. But the interest was intense. It was an issue of the moment. Computer working was becoming ubiquitous. It was classic David V. Goliath material. Thirteen physically slight women against the huge corporate entity. And it was something that all journalists could empathise with. The next 48 hours were just a whirl. I lost count of how many interviews to the print media, radio, TV. Talk about feeding a monster. But it was essentially a good news story. These working practices were crippling people and employers were being too slow to act. Or not acting at all in many cases. And in the same way we can see but not be absolutely sure about greater automation. So it was with computerization then. We knew that however bad the situation was at that point in time, it would get worse in direct proportion to the spread of computers as an integral work tool. So, we needed to secure permanent and enduring changes in order to prevent further pain, suffering and court cases. It just took a bloody long time and left people in and at risk of chronic pain just for coming to work and doing their job. But if the compensation awarded was on the low side, oh my, the legal precedent sent all sorts of dominoes falling. The employer's insurers, I think, compelled the company to appeal. The appeal was lost. The services of the pompous chief medical officer, who dismissed the health concerns of our members, were soon to be um, no longer required. But it didn't stop there. The court case gave added impetus to the development of new policies on safe working, with display screen equipment computers to you and me at a European level. We forget that for most of the 1980s and into the 1990s, we had to rely on our European counterparts to fly the flag for a social partnership approach to industrial strategy and employee relations. We were getting precious little joy at home in the midst of a 17-year spell of conservative government, which was in the process of dismantling an economic consensus that had lasted since the end of the Second World War. The DSE, or Display Screen Equipment Regulations, finalised in 1992, were part of a set of directives known as the six-pack, which transformed the health and safety landscape, and very much for the better. But once Europe makes its mind up, the task of applying EU regulations to the UK environment had to take place. A three-way task force was set up, unions, industry. Government. With colleagues like Doug Russell for the shop workers and Liz Jenkins for the specialist civil servants, we pushed to make as much progress as quickly as possible. Despite concerns over extra costs, the employers were more or less on board, so adjustable furniture, seats whose height and tilt and back support you could tune to the individual needs of the employee, became obligatory. The dimensions of equipment and the space around them at the workstation or desk, if you like, in old money were recognised as key components of a healthy setup: Space under the desk to put your feet, a glare-free screen and resolution of the screen itself, all now recognised. But it wasn't all plain sailing. How to give workers adequate respite from the dangers of repetitive DSE work caused us problems. Problems only in the sense that we couldn't reach an easy consensus or compromise. Very late in the day, I recall, we settled on a minimum five minutes break away from the screen in every 60 worked. This is, of course, easy if you have the sort of job that gives control over how you work. When I had a day in the office, my PC would certainly be at the core of what I did, but on-screen work would be interrupted by looking at or marking up papers, phone calls where I didn't need to look at the screen, or simply the ability to get up and stretch. Clearly, not all workers have this luxury. In fact, some employers, as some employers always do, were adept at sidestepping the new standards. So-called micro-breaks could be aggregated to hit the five minutes in every 60 target, the gaps between phone calls and customer service centres, for example, or between customers in supermarket checkout queues. This, of course, entirely undermined the whole safe working approach, which was based on taking everything into account and putting the worker at the heart of the equation. Because that is how you get the best out of your people. It wasn't just breaks or workers exercising a modicum of control that was a challenge. The actual definition of what constituted DSE was contentious too. Don't forget this was at more or less the dawn of this technology and a workforce who hadn't grown up with screens instead of pages and digital technology being as much part of their lives as their work. So running a few 1992 posers past a 2020's audience, answer me this, are or were the following bits of kit, quote, display screen equipment, close quotes. A. Library checkouts. B. Supermarket tills. C. Handheld work allocation terminals or bricks, as they sometimes used to be known. D. Medical monitoring devices in hospitals. The answer to all of the above was no. The display was only a single line of text. The equipment wasn't unavoidably essential for the task. The environment in which they were used meant that the risks, and therefore the remedies, were reduced or absent. It seems crazy, doesn't it? But we were in a desktop-centric, low-definition world. Alongside the inexorable spread of digital devices, there has been a corresponding increase in their sophistication, and in particular, the quality of the images. We expect now to see full screens in all of those four environments, and everywhere else for that matter. But just because the debate about what constitutes DSE has largely been resolved, the question of what working arrangements apply to it remain. Look at how delivery firms operate as an illustration. The final link in the internet supply chain are usually, and questionably, self-employed men and women in white vans taking things from collection points to individual customers. Maybe this will all be replaced by drones in the next 10 years, but... I somehow doubt it. One of these drivers told me how he had to check in on a wrist-worn envelope-sized tablet no less than 10 times for each delivery. No surprise he was always running. No surprise that he's working well into the evening. No surprise that the supplier doesn't want people like them as employees. No surprise that customers choose not to reflect on what their guaranteed 24-hour delivery means in practice. Because... It never was just about the technical spec of the kit, although that was a gateway for some important improvements in workplaces. Uplighters to reduce glare, for example, regulations on temperature and humidity. But as a footnote, surely it says something bad when computers are more protected in the law than the people who work with them. The whole point of the cases of Denise Lodge and Angela McSherry and their colleagues and the EU regulations and the negotiations to bring them into being in the UK was that. The interaction between people and technology. It wasn't working. The balance was wrong. Workers were getting hurt and business was obliged to respond. And the whole point of trade unions in this scenario, it's that we were And are the collective vehicle to support those legal challenges and change the law. Because individuals simply cannot do it on their own. It is at the heart of what unions do. Now, Elf and Safety, as it was and is still known, is set apart from your normal or mainstream union activities. That's all thanks to the deeply collaborative character of HASWA, that's the Health, Safety and Welfare at Work Act 1974, and its offspring, the SRSE regs, that would be Safety Representatives and Safety Committee Regulations 1977. But even though us and the employers were supposed to be singing from the same hymn sheet, misunderstanding, distrust, disaster and disorder were never very far away. You can hear all about that on the next episode of Union Days. This has been Union Days, scenes from a union scrapbook with me, Simon Sapper. Music is by Scott Holmes. Production by Makes You Think. Subscribe, rate and review on the podcast platform of your choice. You can email the show at info at